<laughs> hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today's guest has a story, a remarkable story of healing from an autoimmune disease. She's also the co-author of a wonderful book called Body on Fire. Her name is Dr. Monica Agrawal. Please welcome her to the show. It's so nice to see you again. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I love your story on so many levels, of, especially because it, it just you know, you look at it now as a, as a good thing, what happened to you. I mean, at the time, of course it wasn't, but now you say it's like in a way, the greatest gift. You know, it, it, it's true. It's funny because there's so many times in your life you say, well, this is happening for a reason. And I don't know, uh, I'm sure I'm going to figure it out later, but this is truly one of those times where uh, I had so much to learn. And if I hadn't gone through something so significant, I probably wouldn't have learned the lessons, you know, and, and maybe the best lesson I learned from this whole thing was that I learned humility. And I learned that, um, that you can't predict no matter how many things you do, right, you can still get sick, and you can still be affected. And I think that that's something that people um, forget, especially in sometimes I see this in the plant based world in particular, like, well, I eat very healthy. So I'm going to be just fine. I'm not going to get COVID. I'm not going to get this well, you know what, not life isn't always exactly the way you want it to be. And so um, uh, all you can do is do the best you can. Right. And that, that, you know, I've been vegan for 44 years. And that's just a big thing in the vegan community that if you eat, even if you eat perfectly, you should never get sick. And that's the most, that's the most ridiculous thing in the whole world. Yeah. yeah, it's too bad. You know, people sent me messages when I posted that I had gotten COVID back in January, like, really, you got COVID and you're plant based? Well, yeah, you know, I think, you know, I'm around hospital patients all the time. Uh, I see, I see COVID consults every single day. I'm in the ICU doing procedures. And so the likelihood that I'm going to get COVID is pretty high, uh, despite all the things that we were doing. This is sort of back in December and January when we didn't have vaccine yet. And um, I think the thing, what I try to remind people is that you are still going to be at risk for infections. It's just that your hopefully your immune system is going to be strong and you're going to be sturdy that if you get the infection that you're going to be able to combat it better. And luckily I had very mild symptoms. Um, and so I think, I think that's the, t- the key point is that yes, probably, but you know, I, we uh, sadly did a lung transplant recently on a 27 year old woman um, who was a nurse and a runner. And so this is a tricky illness. Um, and so one that I think has humbled all of us. You know, it's, it's not only people that just expect to never get sick, but it's people that aren't. And anytime, you know, if a vegan even has a sniffle, see it because you're vegan. Uh, right. I know it's, it's a funny thing. Um, you know, di- people are very sensitive about their diets and about their lifestyle choices. And so, you know, if you bring up something and they, well, that's why we're keto, that's why we're this, that's why we're that. And I, I like to remind people that, you know, there no one is immune to anything and, um, and then just to do the best you can. And let's not try to judge people and just try to kind of appreciate that everybody has problems, everybody gets sick, everybody gets things, and you just kind of uh, hope that you can get a little bit better each time. Absolutely. So tell your story about how you, you, know, you had an autoimmune disease and you, you had little kids at the time. You were, I mean, you still are a doctor, but you were just kind of finishing your education or starting your practice. Yeah. So um, 
So I'm now, um, when I was about, let's see, it was, the baby is now, uh, she is 10. Oh my goodness. So when she, so I had three children under four um, at one point. And so for anybody who's ever had anybody in sort of subspecialty or studied as study forever, which I have, my son actually said to me, wait, how many years were you in school? And when I had to count, I was like, oh, that's kind of depressing. But when you kind of have been in school for so long, you, you kind of want to wait until you have kids. And that arguably is a discussion point as well, because a woman in medicine is a tricky thing. And we often feel that we can't have children because other people, all the male physicians uh, would look down on us. And sadly, cardiology, which is my specialty, uh, there's only one in maybe 10 physician, 10 cardiologists is a woman. And so there's a lot of expectation to man up, so to speak. Um, so I decided to wait until I finished all of my training before I uh, went, started having kids. And so you know, clock's ticking. You said you, you start wanting to have kids and you, so I had three kids under four. So I always tell people this, that I had one kid that would jump when I'd come home, would jump into my arms. One kid uh, would be hanging onto my leg and one would be on the breast. And so like, it was just the three kids and that's how I'd walk in the door. And it was like, okay, game's on. And so, you know, I lived this crazy life where I worked full time or mostly full time. I took a lot of call. I was taking heart attack calls on the phone, babies cooing on my breast. You know, that was my life. And um, but I felt like I had to be everything. I was pureeing sweet potatoes at midnight. I was uh, trying to go for a jog because I, heaven forbid, I had didn't I had a baby rump um, after having three kids. And the expectations a person puts on themselves, uh, you know, I've reflected a lot on that, on our expectations of ourselves, expectations as women, uh, that we have to do all these things and be so good at so many things. So about. Um, Four and a half months after baby number three, I started manifesting joint pain. I always remember that in particular because it was a specific joint and I find myself massaging it sometimes and thinking, oh God, is it pain or is I'm just massaging it? Um, but I'll start massaging it and then it gets better. It got better. And then a few days later, another joint, then it was my shoulders. I remember my feet felt like there was glass in them. So every time I stepped, I would feel a cutting feeling. And so I kept changing my shoes, insisting that the shoes were the problem and, and not me. I couldn't button. I stopped losing within a few days of sort of very quickly, I started not being able to do the buttoning because baby clothes have snaps and I couldn't snap the clothes. And so I kept remember thinking I was going to write a letter to baby clothes companies, Carter's clothes or baby gap or something and say, you know, you shouldn't make clothes this way because it's too hard, sort of always explaining the problem away. So uh, within a couple week period, I went from being sort of a runner and moving around like a busy mom and doctor to um, being completely debilitated. Um, I tell the story, the hardest part of that story is the day that I knew I was really sick. I remember I was, um, it was like five in the morning, I'd gone downstairs to um, let the dogs out and get started on the day. And you have to get up like two hours early because you get, I had to get two kids to daycare. I had to nurse a baby and then I had to pump for the baby and then make my own lunch uh, and then somehow looked presentable for work. So I get up and took the dogs out. And I remember that I was bustling around downstairs and I had um, 
and the baby started crying and the baby's room was too right near the other two kids. And I was worried that they were going to, she was going to wake the other two up. And so I tried to, tried to run up the stairs and I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't even run. I couldn't even get up the stairs. And um, my husband found me at the bottom of the um, crib because I crawled up that day um, because I couldn't get up the stairs standing and I couldn't get the baby out of the crib. So I was just sitting below the crib crying um, because I couldn't lift her out of the crib. So that would be my, uh, probably my darkest and lowest moment, um, which is the moment where I also sort of realized that there was something really wrong. So uh, I got some blood work done um, and I, I had a doctor friend of mine check it all. Um, and actually before that, I forgot and the most important funny thing I did was I empirically started treating myself uh, for Lyme disease. So I said, well, you know, I have this migratory pain. This makes sense. I live kind of in the woods. I'm sure I got a tick. I'm dark skinned. I missed the bullseye. I have Lyme. This is it. I'm treating it. Um, but I didn't get better. I got worse. And that's when I asked my friend uh, to draw some labs and uh, my inflammatory markers were through the roof. Um, and um, they were, they were pretty sensitive and specific for, uh, advanced rheumatoid arthritis. Wow. I mean, you must have been completely overwhelmed. Yes. I mean, you think like, wait, one more thing. Um, you know, like I can't, I had sort of put myself in the situation of having all these kids and working all the time. Um, and then to have this on top of it. But the truth is, is that it's always in those moments. It's always in those moments when you are at your weakest and most, most susceptible that you're going to be most susceptible to illness. And so it's really no surprise in retrospect that that's the time that I got sick. Wow. Just, uh, do you think the diet played a role at all in your acquiring this illness and how has your diet changed since acquiring it? Yeah. So you know, I think it was very multifactorial for me. So postpartum women, women who've just had babies are in a high inflammatory state. Uh, on top of that, I was um, trying to do everything. I slept three or four hours a night. I was, uh, you know, I told you I was pureeing sweet potatoes at midnight. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, I was nursing and pumping. I was working full time. My stress levels and sympathetic tone was so, so high. And in response, many people, when they're stressed, they eat poorly. So I was, I was already vegetarian, but I was residing, I was, I had gone to eating loads of cheese sticks and I was eating crackers and whatever I could find, I would grab in the hospital. I never ate meat, but I would eat all sorts of junk and processed foods. Um, so absolutely. I think I, I triggered a very high, I was already inflamed and just got myself more and more inflamed. I think the fundamental thing that people need to understand that where which has taken me sort of years to understand myself, which is that, you know, we all have a genetic predisposition to a certain problem, for instance, and I take care of patients with heart disease, but we've even studied, especially in heart disease, patients will develop, you have the genes from your parents, well, you can't change your parents. So you have that maybe predisposition, but 
you can do so many things to change the, the, the what's around the genes, like the epigenetics um, to then modify your risk. And so even in heart disease, for instance, and in heart disease, I can show, I can even show a graph. It's so compelling. If you're at a high risk for heart disease, for instance, and you have a bad lifestyle, then your risk is 50, 50% higher than somebody who has a healthier lifestyle. So if you could sort of extrapolate that into other illnesses, you can see that it's so much of the time, you know, what you have, you have, you can't change that, but suppressing or activating or expressing your genes, you do have control of. And I think that's the thing that people sometimes feel hopeless about, but I, I think that, that if anything, we should be hopeful about because we can change so much with our lifestyle. So did diet make a change or affect me? Absolutely. So I changed everything. I started sleeping. I started saying no, which is a skill that I have nurtured over the years. Um, I have started accepting what my body can give me. I accepted that I can't be perfect, which was a hard lesson. I had to learn a lot of humility and I changed everything about my diet. Like I, I started eating only plant, only whole foods, uh, all unrefined, highly complex carbohydrates, very potent anti-inflammatory foods, lots of anti-inflammatory spices. Um, and I was meticulous to a T and I started changing within weeks. It was remarkable to see the difference. That is great. Do you, would you say you still have the disease today? Would you say you're in remission? Are you cured or are you managing it? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. You know, if you ask a rheumatologist, they would say that there is no cure to rheumatoid arthritis. And um, so when I was diagnosed 10 years ago, that's what I was told, Monica, uh, just get used to this. This is your future. You're gonna be on medicines for life and there is no cure for this illness. I would say that I, when I check my markers, like the genetic markers, my genetic markers remain elevated. So they're never gonna go down. I do believe, I do continue to check because I have, I have a concept that I should be able to switch off the gene as well, but I haven't been successful. Like I see that curve up and down and the data doesn't support, we don't know enough yet about that but the inflammatory markers for nine or eight and a half years since I have been 100% plant-based have been totally flat. Thank goodness. That's great. Well, you know, just any of those things in and of itself is, I mean, just, I think, like you say, being a doctor, I, I, I mean, most of my family is doctors, brothers, uncles, grandfather, cousins, nieces, nephews. And first of all, that's incredibly stressful. And just having kids is stressful. And then having three kids under the age of four, is like you pop one out like every 14 months. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, you put that all together, you know, and you wonder how could you not get sick? And so much, you know, like you, you, you mentioned in your book, how inflammation triggers chronic illness. Well, doesn't stress in itself just trigger inflammation? Absolutely. So, you know, acute stress, which is that short stress, like, oh, I have to run away from a, a robber or that kind of stress is very normal and just causes short bursts of inflammation. And that's appropriate because your body, your heart rate needs to go up, your blood pressure needs to go up. You don't wanna be urinating when you are in trouble. You don't wanna have a stomach ache when you're in trouble. Those things happen um, and your sympathetic tone is high. So your fight or flight response, you're activated and you go. You don't, nothing else bothers you. You just gotta go. You're running away from the robber. And then when you stop, you recover and all the stuff that happened and hurt got hurt, then you appreciate. So that's a very normal re reaction. 
but stress or long-term stress triggers so much. You have sympathetic tone that's high like all the time. And so all of those short-term effects become long-term effects. So I often tell patients to check their heart rate. You know, why is your heart rate in the eighties, for instance, your heart rate really should be a lot lower than that. And, you know, people ask, well, what should your heart rate be? I, I hate to answer that question because it does vary, but you know, patients' heart rates are in the 80s to 110s or so when they're just resting. I would just wonder if they have too much sympathetic tone. Are they in a higher stress state? And we really work hard on trying to calm that heart rate down. Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Sarai Stancic's story as well. Oh, yeah. I know Sarai well. We're good friends. I mean, isn't that, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You guys should team up how you both kind of came to this conclusion. Yes. Yes. I know Sarai well, and we've, we've gone to events together and we, we always have a good time and she's uh, fabulous and a huge resource as well. Yeah. Have any doctors, I mean, I mean, obviously the plant-based community, many of them know your story, but outside of the plant-based community, are any of them familiar with your story and how, how have they responded to it? It's interesting. You know, I work at a, a large institution called the University of Florida. And I think that when I started in the division of cardiology here, I think people didn't know what to do with me because they they knew that I was going to work on lifestyle, but was I going to be sort of a quack or was I going to be somebody who was going to practice, you know, legit medicine, you know, people have these concerns and scientists are difficult and doctors are, are, can be awful and um, quite critical. And so I did worry about that. It's interesting. And so when I first got there, you know, I think people were a bit cautious, um, but I think what I have noted and people have told me since that they've really been pleasantly surprised at the way I'm able to complement my practice of medicine with lifestyle. I think people don't realize that treating people is not just medicine or lifestyle. It's a understanding sort of both sides of it and that you have to implement and use all the resources in your toolkit to make people better. So people know my story now. It's interesting. A bunch of um, I have a lot of people, wives of surgeons, a, a wife of a surgeon just called me the other day and said, I read your story. I heard your podcast. Can you sit with me and teach me because I'm having this problem? Um, some, you know, you know, we as physicians are not immune. In fact, you know, we're at as much risk as anyone else and arguably more and sometimes because of our high levels of stress and poor high dietary habits. And so I see a lot of physicians in my clinic. So in my, I run a prevention clinic and I would tell you that the deans, the doctors, um, they make up a majority, uh, a large number of patients in the clinic. And I think people come because they've either heard my story or see what I'm doing. Um, and they say, well, so-and-so told me I need to be on a statin or I need to be taking this medication. Can you teach me how to not be on those medicines? And so I think that that's an important, funny thing, right? Is that we as physicians, it's easy to give out medicines when you yourself are not affected. And then when you are affected yourself, the last thing you wanna do is be on a medicine. And so I think that that's really important. And so when I talk to patients, I try to think of myself and think, what do I wanna do? Because you know, when you're a pa when I was, before I got sick, I used to think, well, the, the risk of you getting a problem from this medicine X is one in a thousand. But when you're the patient, you think you're that one in a thousand. And so when I started taking medications for rheumatoid arthritis, I started taking methotrexate, which causes liver failure. 
over time. And very rarely you can get an acute case of liver failure. So while it's so rare and I heard that and the logical part of me hears that, the emotional part of me went to bed every time I took it thinking in the morning that I wouldn't wake up. So I get it. I think that I get doctors. I understand. I think the no one wants to become a patient. It is not something you want for yourself. But becoming a patient has been hugely life altering for me. It's made me a better physician for sure. It's made me a better everything. Um, it's changed everything for me. Wow. You know, it's interesting with, with the, of course, stress can play a role in any disease, but in your specialty of cardiology, lifestyle really is important. It really is. Because I mean, are, are your fellow cardiologists understanding that like what Dr. Esselstyn says about how heart disease is a toothless paper tiger, it need never exist. And if it exists, it needs to never progress. You know, there's, it's a mixed bag. I mean, people definitely, um, there's some people that I, you know, I get referrals a lot too, where patients will be told, um, look, diet will not do anything to help your illness, which is a tragedy because even in the biggest scientific journals, you will see the evidence and benefit of lifestyle I mean, stuff we've published ourselves. And so that is a true tragedy. Now, there are other people that think, oh, well, diet's important, but let's take the medicine. And so they're, they're open to it, but they still think the medicine is better. But slowly and slowly, I'm starting to see more and more people ask me about their own health and sending the, and it's evidenced by the number of referrals I get. Um, from my own partners. And so they're sending me so many patients because they understand that yes, they can start the medicine or put a stent in, but I can actually prevent them from ever needing to get a stent. Yeah, that's great. So did your family all get on board when you got sick? Because you had three kids at the time, I'm guessing a husband as well. So yes, 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 yes. So um, did they all get on board? No, I mean, my husband grew up in a uh, in a family where they thought the end of the world was coming and they used to shoot rabbits and put them in the freezer and be prepared for the end of the world kind of thing. Um, and um, so initially, you know, my husband is very, uh, was very supportive of my changes, um, but I'm not the type of person to tell people what to do unless I'm asked. And so um, I never asked him to change for me. And what happened was over time, just watching how I was eating, seeing how good I felt, he completely changed. And that was something that he decided on his own, but that's important to me because I don't think that I'm not in a relationship that I feel that I should be dictating. That's not how I, I, I my relationship works. And so, um, but slowly over time, he completely adapted everything. I mean, he's the one who dries my turmeric now. He's the one who grinds it up for me. He makes me satan and he makes it for all of us. You know, my kids are, um, uh, they, uh, you know, because I do the cooking, yeah, they, uh, they eat plant-based. So um, it's funny because I remember my son when he was nine or 10, he's like, mama, I just don't like spinach. And I said, honey, I love you, but I don't care, you know? And so maybe that's a little bit tough, but that's sort of how it went because I, I really just don't care. I mean, at the end of the day, I want them to eat a certain amount of greens because it's very healthy for them. And that's what they understand. Now, as they've gotten older and they're getting into that preteen age, they're definitely asking more about different things. 
And the, my answer to that is sure, let's try it. Like I, um, my daughter came home and she said, mom, I want to try this thing. It's called pudding. Um, so my 10 year old said, let's go get pudding. So I said, okay, let's go get pudding. So we went to Publix, which is our grocery store and we picked up pudding and she tasted it and we got the little jar and she's like, mm, it doesn't taste that good. I'm like, okay. But then there are certain things she does like, and they will try and they say, I do like this. And so I sort of feel like the way I want to raise my children is that I want them to eat plant-based 100% all of the time, but they live in the world and I don't want them to be 18 and say, to heck with what mom said, I'm going to McDonald's every day because she never took me to McDonald's. So if they go out, they know that if they want to try something, I will say nothing. Um, and I let them try it and they can do what they like with it, but they know that at our house, this is how we're going to eat. And what I found almost nine out of 10 times is that they prefer what we cook at home and what we eat at home. And, you know, if we go out and eat and we, even when we travel, I always remember this when we travel because we always, we usually rent a, a flat or a, a VRBO or whatever. And we bring our own food. Like I travel with hummus. I'm sure you travel with food and stuff too. And so we travel with all of our items and then you end up eating out once or twice. And the kids would always say, oh, I want to go home and eat at home. Let's go home so we can eat fresh, healthy food. So, you know, they don't say fresh, healthy food. They just want to eat home cooked food. They don't even know or appreciate that we're eating it because it's healthy. They just know it's their comfort food from home. Right. And, and most people develop the taste preference from what they eat habitually, whether it's healthy or not. And if they've been getting a lot of good food at home, I can imagine it probably doesn't taste as good to them. How old are the kids now? The kids are 10, goodness, 12 and 14. So my 14 year old boy who was four at the time of my illness. So 10 years ago now, he's six foot two. Um, my husband is six, four, six, three, and he's six, two now. And um, my daughter, middle daughter, 12, she's in sixth grade. She is also almost my height, which is crazy. And uh, I'm five, six, and she's almost there. And then the little, we call her shrimpy, the little one. And the shrimpster is uh, my spitfire, <laughs> the craziest of us all, uh, and is in fourth grade. Wow, that's amazing. Do you ever share with them the reasons that you eat this way? I mean, because now maybe when they were under the age of four, yeah. they couldn't understand. But like you say, they're old enough, your youngest one read your book. So they understand at least probably why you're doing it. Yeah, no, they totally get it now, which is cool. So they they sometimes will call me um, because they get it. So they'll say, well, we don't eat this food because it hurts animals and because we um, don't think it's good for your body. Like I've heard them say that and you know, it makes me a little tearful. It's so cute, listen to that. Um, but, um, and so sometimes they'll call me and say, you know, Uncle Andre wants me to eat you know, one of our neighbor friends. Well, Uncle Andre wants us to eat this food. Is it okay? And my answer is not yes or no. It's, it's what you think you would like to do is fine with me. And so, uh, and they think about it and then they make the decision. And I just don't want them to think of me as their keeper in the sense of like, they have to, they have to impress or they're going to disappoint me. I don't, I don't want them to ever feel that. I want their choices to be their own. And if they feel that they've made a choice and they sometimes try something and say, mommy, it gave me a tummy ache. I'll say, okay, well, maybe don't try that one next time. Wow. 
I don't, I don't have kids, so I can't comment on what kind of parent I'd be, but I think of a funny story. I may not be telling it correctly, but I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Alan Goldhammer, who eats not only plant-based, but you know what some people might think is too extreme, sugar, oil, salt-free. And he has a son, Gar, and his wife, Dr. Jennifer Marano, was telling me sometime when they were, because they that's all they had at home, and the kid yeah. grew up at the center. So, and they, they were somewhere, and there was, there was like a cupcake, and he had never seen a cupcake. So he went and got it, and he goes, Mommy, can I eat this? And instead of saying yes or no they, like they actually i don't know how old he was but they said well you can eat this but the consequences are you know and it was like you could get, get stuck in the pleasure trap and then they look and they put it back you know <laughs> <laughs> i don't think that that's wrong either she you know they're teaching them healthy habits and i think that that's very important and so we just slightly do it a little bit differently i mean i tell them what I think they should do. I just, you know, in the sense of like, these are the reasons we do them and this is why, but then I just, in the moment, I try not to weigh, weigh on them. I let them kind of decide and they know the history. They know why I am the way I am. They understand what I do for a living. Uh, and then they'd make the final decision. Yeah, that's great. And, and now there's just so many, like with Game Changers, there seems to be a documentary for every need, whether it's athletes or people that have the, you know, need the, the compassion piece or the environment. So that, that's fantastic. Yeah. Angela, who lives in Florida, wanted to know if you are taking new patients and do you work virtually or it has to be in person? Yeah, so, um, so some, um, right now I do, um, I do only in person, but I am shifting models and um, in the next couple of months um, to where I will be doing more, I'll have more options. Um, so if you are curious and would like to be seen, check out my website, drmonicaagarwell.com, which has nothing on it right this second about it, um, but will over the next month or so as I continue to evolve and change uh, into this new role. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about this wonderful book. I had your co-author on this week and oh, you both, both brought different pieces to the table. So who, who is this book for? So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's a good question. So I would tell you that that book is for everyone. Um, you know, some people say, well, I'm going to read it because I have rheumatoid arthritis like she does. And so I think it's going to help me. Yes. Uh, I think when I wrote part of those books, I wrote it specifically for patients who have heart disease because I'm a cardiologist. So I put in pictures of blood vessels and show how inflammation affects the vessels. I also think of it as a book that's for people who have gut issues because I think so much of the mechanism, in fact, most of my study, the research I do is on the role of diet, but how it goes through the mechanism of the gut. And so we found some really cool data recently where we showed changes in the gut flora by putting on pe people on a, a plant-based diet for just six days. And so um, Scott Stoll, um, as you all may know, is a, is a huge proponent of plant-based nutrition. And, and Scott helps me with a lot of research projects. And so we were able to take some of his patients and put them through a change. And the mechanism is clearly a gut change. And um, so if you ask me who the book is for, I would say it's for really everyone who has stress or who has inflammation and who's at risk for inflammation, which is everyone. And so I think, I think that, I think we all need to understand that we can prevent illness by making changes and we can make our illnesses better by making changes. So there's, it's never too late. I have a patient who's 92 who went plant-based 
And he is blown away and sent me this long letter about how great he feels by just the changes he's made. So it's really for anybody and everyone who wants to deal with inflammation and who wants to have a tool. Like I have a partner in my um, that I used to work with. He said, Agarwal, he said, um, all right, I know what you're into. Like I get your vibe and all that. Um, but you know, you keep your stuff to you and I am gonna take my Crestor. So he's like, I'm gonna eat my steak and I'm gonna eat my Crestor too. Crestor is a cholesterol medication. And so, and I said, okay, you know, but you know, that is not, you know, and so I said nothing and you know, that's the end of it, you know, because again, I, I, if you ask me how to change, I will help you change, but I'm not gonna, I'm not going to tell you if you don't ask me. And so um, that to me is sad though, right? Because it's not that red meat or that steak, it will, if you eat steak, for instance, it doesn't just increase your LDL, the statins decrease LDL. Um, it also causes inflammation. Well, it's true statins have some anti-inflammatory effect, that's true, but it also changes the way your gut works. And we make metabolites in our gut that become elevated. Some you know some like TMAO or, or um, endotoxin, there's sort of things that your gut makes when you eat those foods that your statin isn't helping you with, or it has so much sodium, which makes your blood pressure go up, which the statin doesn't help you with. Um, I mean, so, and so there's, you know, there's trans, there's so many things that we are not appreciating by eating one food. You, so you can't say I'm going to take my stat, uh, my, eat my steak and take my statin too, because it's not in kind You're There's so many things that you're doing with eating that steak that that medicine is not doing. So who is the book for everyone? <laughs> That's, that's true. Long you story. Say, yeah, I don't know anyone that doesn't have stress. I like that. I think you coined a new phrase. You can have your steak and statin too. Yeah, I know, right? Have yeah. your steak and statin too. But sadly, even with the steak and statin, you're still not going to be as good as somebody who doesn't eat the steak. Absolutely. People keep commenting, Dr. Agarwal, on your beautiful background and wanted to know. Oh, thank you. That's nice. Um, you know, that is one of my favorite backgrounds that I do when I do podcasts. So I don't think it's, it's huge. It's like four pieces of wood. I got it in Thailand. Uh, I used to travel a lot pre-COVID and pre-kids. And that is something we picked up when we were in Thailand. That's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Susan wanted to know, what are some of your kids' favorite meals that you make or that they make or eat? Sure, sure. So um, some of the go-to items. And so, because that's a good question, actually, Susan. So thanks for asking it because people often say, well, these foods aren't kid-friendly. Um, and so um, what foods do they love? Okay, so my kids love black bean and corn burritos. That's a huge favorite in our house is black bean and corn burritos. The other way they like to eat like tacos is Indian style. So I use kidney beans and I use Indian spices like cumin and um, curry powders. And I'll make like a, and I'll mash up the beans and I make it into like a, a taco bean. Um, and then they'll like to eat those with tacos. Um, another, um, mostly they adore, they love everything Indian food because I cook a lot of Indian food. So for people who are familiar with things like dal, which is a lentil, uh, we eat lentils, um, once at least a week. Um, and you know, we're writing the cookbook and we're putting a, that goes the body on fire cookbook right now is being written. And we put in a, in a dal recipe, which was somebody, people have asked for that. Um, so, uh, so the lentils with brown rice, although they argue with me and tell me that white rice is better. I don't know what they're talking about. And then uh, black bean and corn burritos. Um, that's, those are some of their go-tos. 
Uh, every once in a while, they like to eat a veggie burger. So I like if we do something quick, I don't do a lot of veggie burgers or pre-made. I usually make fresh veggie burgers. Um, and But sometimes I'll do an Amy's veggie burger if I get, if I'm very late and busy. Um, they love to eat um, Asian food. So like noodles or like a pho. We do a lot of pho at our house or udon noodle soup. Um, which is another sort of go-to because you can throw a load of vegetables into that and they don't even notice it. Right, great. And thank you for mentioning the cookbook because Bill was asking if there's recipes on this in this book, Body and Fire. There's not, but you are coming out with the cookbook. Yes, it's, um, I am behind, um, <laughs> story of my life, um, but it is, it's getting there. And uh, because I think the biggest criticism of the Body on Fire book was that there weren't recipes, which is a fair comment. I think for me, I kind of couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to do that. And maybe because I'm sort of one tracked. And so I felt like it needed to be its like own thing. And what we're doing with the cookbook, which I, and you're better at it than I am, AJ, I'm just not as good at it. And so what I found for this second book, what we are doing is we put in a, the other comment we've had is, well, I love your book. I, I can understand it, but how do I get started? So I put in like a four to, because I think the first six weeks are crucial. So I put the six week program that I do with my patients into the cookbook. So this is what I want you to eat on this first six weeks, you know, eat, rinse, repeat kind of thing. Do you do any culinary instruction for your patients? Yeah, so we had a um, we had a we used to host a culinary last year pre-COVID. We did a culinary CME, but that was for physicians, and we had S come down and Jane and and um, and we had tried to have you come down, but it was like COVID, and I was a it was crazy. But um, the if we continue that, that's for physicians and allied professionals. We don't do a cooking class for patients. Although I think that that would be a great idea. Um, I do have a couple of people like we're, we're running a study right now to assess the effects of oil in a plant-based diet. And in that study, we have people, dietitian, a plant-based nutritionist and um, chef, and she's cooking for the patients, which is fun, but I don't have anything to offer currently um, to patients, but I, you don't need me because you have Chef AJ. Yeah, that's neat. It's, it's interesting how I'm finding so many more plant-based doctors are also going to culinary school. Yeah, I think that's, I think that that's a great idea. There's so much, it's so nice to see that actually. Um, I, I tend to, it's interesting. I have so much of my mother in me. And so I, I do a lot of winging it. And so I take a lot of the foods that I grew up with uh, and then I start changing them and modifying them. But I do eat a lot of tofu and tempeh and, um, and so I, I'm always enjoy sort of playing with that and trying to figure out how to bring the flavor into the foods that way. And so I really enjoy that. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm always looking for a kale recipe. So I feel like I, if I, there's not enough kale that I could eat in this planet. So I feel like if I can put a hundred kale recipes in this cookbook, uh, I would do it. Wow. Well, if you need me to contribute any, I, yes. have, I have two from previous books that are really knock your socks off. One is called Lip Smack and Mouthwatering Kale because it is, and one is, is actually, it's, it's a Sharon McRae's recipe, but I kind of tweaked it a little and it's called a Mediterranean Kale and it tastes like pizza. Oh, I'd love to. Thank yeah, you so much. It, yes. would, it, would be, it would be an honor. Uh, so there's a question uh, from Kim. What kind, what do you use when, for tortillas? You were mentioning your kids like burritos. Yes. Yes. So um, I will tell you that for me, I use the Ezekiel um, sprouted tortilla. 
Um, for my kids, I can't get them to love those. And so they do eat um, the, the uh, whole wheat flour ones, which I don't love as much truthfully, um, but I can't, they, I haven't gotten them to love the other ones yet. Um, but I, I eat the Ezekiel one um, sprouted tortilla. Everybody says they're looking forward to the cookbook. Do you have any idea when it will be on so I can get you guys a book? Oh, that's account. kind of you. Yes. So, um, so we're due for spring of 21. That that's assuming that I get it done by end of May. They want it um, for spring of 21. I'm sorry. Wait, this is 22. one spring sorry. 21. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. You know, year got lost in COVID, so I get confused. <laughs> Sorry, spring of 22 is when it's supposed to be released. Um, that's assuming I get it done in the next month. But I think we will. We're, we're, I mean, I, I think we'll be on time. We're, we're getting really close. Yeah, I'm a, I book about four months in advance. So great. Okay. And I'm sure your publisher will tell me too, because I he's he's actually publishing one of my books. And he that when he has a great oh, book, he always okay. tells me, that yeah, you must interview this person. So I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So I'm excited about that too. It's a definitely... Um, it's a little bit out on the limb for me because it's not my forte. Um, but what I do really, the part that I really like, like when people come into my clinic, they get, they walk out with a four or five page list of things to do. And there's, these are the breakfast, these are the lunches, these are the dinners, here's the grocery list. I want you to pick up these, these are the brands I want you to buy. And so like they come out. And so I tried to sort of mimic my clinic visit into the book and said, this is the list of groceries I want you to buy for your six weeks. This is what I want you to do. So hopefully um, I'm able to sort of, for people who can't come in and see me, um, they'll be able to kind of have that experience. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if you went to the doctor and you just, you know, you know how sometimes when you go to doctors, like they, they get samples of drugs from pharmaceutical reps and like, especially if the, if you've been going to the doctor for a long yeah. time, like, you know, you don't have a lot of money, they'll give you like a little sample of that drug. Wouldn't it be cool if they just gave you like samples of fruits and vegetables or, Hey, even better yet here, here's your food for the week. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that you say that. So I used to, um, I used to give out like oatmeals that I liked and I would have samples in the, but unfortunately uh, they, they would get taken. <laughs> and so that was sort of an unfortunate problem where I'd have my little sample kit, but I definitely have thought how it would be really nice if I could just have like, these are the, this is the best balsamic vinegar. Now there are five great balsamic vinegars for the way. I love the one you sent us. It's fabulous. So thank you props out for that one. Um, I like, I ate this, that the spicy one, the hot, hot one. Oh, oh the glazed habanero. That's Dr. Michael Greger's favorite. That is oh, so I love that. Oh my God. I love it. And then I had a sweet one too, which I have to remember to tell you, and it's white vinegar, which I don't typically like and loved it. So, um, but so I feel like, and that's California vinegars. Um, balsamic. Maybe you had the lemon or something like that. Or the yeah, I'll have to find it and send you the picture just, just for fun. Um, but I, there, you know, it wouldn't be fun if we had like the five or different types and you could just check off on a sheet. These are the things we want. And then you could walk out with, these are the things that you bought, like going to the grocery store, um, but you got them from the doctor's office. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool that instead of pharmaceutical reps who are always trying to woo doctors with expensive trips and things, we had a fruit and vegetable rep? Yes. Like the future of medicine, perhaps. That's right. Well, you know, there are some medical schools and I had one of them on that actually have a degree in culinary medicine where they're teaching the doctors how to cook. Yes. And we run a one week nutrition intensive at the, at the medical school. Um, and we have an obesity rotation and we have patients that just come in for wellness now that are all students, which is so great. And they, 
they all round in my um, clinic with me and their comments are like, wow, we didn't, you know, you could do this or that you could spend this much time with a patient or that you could make such an impact. Um, and, you know, um, it's just, it's nice to see. And, you know, it, you know, I try not to get saddened by the fact that, wow, it's, you know, that this is the first they're getting this, um, but to sort of rem remember that it's so good, at least that they're getting it. Yeah, and hopefully they've made things a little less stressful for doctors because I know like the grueling when you're in residence. I mean, like they, like you used to couldn't even get any sleep when you were in residency. Like that right. was like like your badge of honor or something. And that that that's just crazy to create disease in people that are trying to cure other people. Makes no sense. It's such a sad thing, you know. And you know the re the only reason that that changed there were work hour changes because. Um, uh, somebody made a mistake. Uh, there was, um, re you know, residents were making mistakes and because they're so overtired. And so now we have those residency work hours and uh, I'm glad for the residents, um, you know, and people love to say, well, when I was a resident, I didn't have those because it's our badge of honor that we didn't have those work hours. And, you know, the truth is, is that, look, if I can do a really good job in a little bit less time and sleep a little bit more, I'll take it any day. Yeah, fantastic. Sharmila, who's watching live, says, Dr. Esselstyn says, if you follow a super strict whole food plant-based lifestyle with greens at every meal, he says the endothelium will be healthy and don't worry about slightly elevated LDL. What is your opinion as a cardiologist? It depends. Uh, everybody comes to the table with a different scenario. So yes, if you eat a load of greens, you're going to improve your, your activating nitric oxide release, which then vasodilates the vessels, which basically is what Essie's talking about with the endothelial function or the endothelial cells, which are the thin layer of cells on the blood vessel. So yes, they're going to get better, but it, it really depends on sort of how you came to the table. I think that's really important to understand that some people have had 50 years of lifestyle that's maybe not been so optimal and then they change their diet. And so it's a matter of, is they, is there enough, um, can we counteract fast enough what's been done? Sometimes, not always. Sometimes we need to be more aggressive. And the other thing to always remember is that there are certain LDL thresholds we, thresholds we have on our guidelines. And so it's very important to me to be guideline driven. And so anything that's gonna bring your LDL down, I think is important. And so, um, because we do have data to show that LDL reduction in patients who have heart disease does improve your mortality. And so I do focus on bringing down that LDL, but it depends on, the, again, the patient. So I think, I, I think, I, I, Sharmila, I would say it depends. Um, if your LDL is 190 and you're eating plant-based, well, that's, that's not gonna be optimal. If your LDL is uh, 105, um, that's a very different scenario. Right. And, you know, a lot of people worry about numbers. And I'm not going to say this is good because I'm not a doctor, but that like the doctor said, well, my HDL was too low. But I, they, I keep hearing that analogy about when you don't have garbage, you don't need garbage trucks. So if you're eating really clean, the numbers aren't necessarily as worrisome as if you're not. Is that correct? To yeah, I mean, I think, I think yes. And I mean, so, so, so again, some people come to the table with genetic conditions where they will always, they can't make LDL receptors, for instance, so they can't clear their LDL. And so they're going to always, no matter what you do, they're going to have LDL, high LDL. And those patients are going to have heart disease at a young age. And so those patients need medicine. There is no way around that, that I have been able to find um, that I can be good enough. Um, and other at the other, but that most people aren't in that scenario. And most people that making your lifestyle changes will make a huge impact on those numbers. And your point is important that 
you know, it's, if you don't, your HDL too low, quote unquote, I don't know if I, I believe that because if your LDL, as you point out is low too, there's no gar, as you said, there's no garbage in. So, um, you know, you, um, are, your ratio is still going to be very low. So more than just one number, we really have to look at everything, the ratio, if you have a lower HDL, but is your LDL also really low? Um, that's because you just have, so your numbers, your bad and good cholesterol are both low, you're in a good place. Great. There's a question from Linda. Is there anything specific in a whole food plant-based SOS-free diet to help with venous insufficiency? Yeah. So venous insufficiency is mechanical. So that's a tricky problem. So mechanical problems are problems like arthritis, not rheumatoid, which is inflammatory, but like osteoarthritis, which is mechanical. So venous insufficiency typically is a problem where the veins in your, um, your superficial veins, and sometimes your deep veins have these valves, which their job is to push the blood back to the heart and they get broken. Now, typically that's because of longstanding obesity. Um, if you carried a lot of children, um, if you have larger weight in your hips than in your tummy, those are, and then some of it's really genetic, then you may be more prone to sort of getting those bigger blood veins, those veins in your legs and those vein, those valves become incompetent. And then over time, it's hard. The things that you can do for venous insufficiency are eating really low salt, because if there's less water in the whole system, um, then there'll be less water in your legs. Um, you can wear TED stockings, which always helps, um, um, but don't restrict your water, restrict your salt, but drink, um, drink plenty of water, um, wear TED stockings. And some people, if they get that neuropathic pain when their legs are swelling, Epsom salts are really good for that. I love Epsom salts bath. The only thing I, I live in the desert. So when it's over a hundred, I don't like taking baths. So much, I do love, <laughs> I'm a bath person. Yeah, it's great. Well, the magnesium too, that you're getting into your body that way. Yeah. So Faith has a question. No, Sorry. About, oh no, of course, if the long-term effects of COVID, anything that damages the heart in particular. Yeah, um, there are, we have seen, I, I am seeing in my clinic and uh, in the hospital patients who are getting COVID myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. Um, and there are people that are having very interesting heart related um, problems like POTS, which is a heart rate issue. Um, that's happening to patients post COVID where um, their heart rates rise very quickly. A very interesting um, later complications of COVID. Um, typically though, what we're seeing is that you're not just fine and then a year later you're having a symptom. So what you're, so don't, I wouldn't panic about that, but it's usually sort of in that first couple of months post COVID that we are seeing some of those people are still inflamed. I myself have had COVID. Um, and um, I found that I had some elevated heart rates post COVID as well. And so while I was seeing the patients in the clinic, I also had them. The treatment is tricky though, because most of it we think is inflammatory. So some people do need to be treated with medicine, but my, myself, because it was, all, uh, was fairly benign, just hydration and cutting out caffeine helped me. Uh, speaking of caffeine, there's also a question. What do you think about caffeine in general and green tea in particular? Yeah, I'm not against caffeine. Uh, I know that not all of us agree on that, but I, I think caffeine's okay. In general, the studies have shown that um, if you're somebody who drinks caffeine regularly, then just stick regular instead of binge drinking, that's when it becomes not so good for you. Um, 
So in general, I'm, I'm pro on the ca- I'm pro or not against rather caffeine, um, but it's what we do to the caffeine. It's what we add to the sh- teas and coffees, like the creamers and the sugars and the, uh, those kind of things that I would want everyone to avoid. Um, but if you like to drink, I like to drink green tea as potent antioxidants. Uh, and I do enjoy it and drink green tea and I'm fine with it. But even for people with atrial fibrillation? Oh, so different scenarios. So if patients have atrial fibrillation or problems with elevated heart rates, uh, they may be, they will likely have to cut back on their caffeine intake. So, and you know, these post COVID elevated heart rates, like myself, the way I treated myself was increased hydration and cutting out caffeine. Now my heart rate is resolved and I am back to drinking caffeine again, but sometimes you in that sort of inflammatory state, you have to sort of make more drastic changes. Right. I know when my husband got AFib, the doctor, cardiologist, plant-based wrote on a prescription pad, no caffeine, no chocolate, no alcohol. Yes. So those are sort of big ones. And people forget that chocolate has caffeine in it. And so um, they sometimes will, I find I have patients that cut out their caffeine, but keep eating a lot of chocolate and they still trigger people who have palpitations too. So people who get PVCs or people might've heard those terms, PVCs, or, or they notice their heart fluttering a lot at night. Um, those people often are, have a lot of sympathetic tone and cutting out that caffeine helps. Right. So many doctors and, that, and even some plant-based doctors are very pro-oil. And, you know, your book is about inflammation, but my understanding is that processed food in general is very inflammatory. So even if it wasn't for the direct effect on the endothelial, I don't see why oil is healthy for somebody, especially with cardiac disease. Yeah, so the big question, answer to the question is that we don't fully know the answer to that question. So I think that part of the reason I'm running the study that I'm doing is it's a plant-based study and I'm adding in a high oil, it's a crossover design. So we're trying to look at putting people on a plant-based diet with a higher amount of oil, like in a Mediterranean diet, and then crossing it over to a low oil arm and seeing how you do into what happens to the gut flora and to inflammation. So while my bias is that less oil is better, I don't think we fully know um, the impact of certain, some of these oils like polyphenols, like in, that have high polyphenol content. Now, I think that in general, we should say, and what the party line is, is that we want to not eat oil for health. So I think that that's one thing that I, I try to advocate to people. Now, is there a role for some oil for some people? Maybe. Um, I think the question is that, you know, we have to sort of understand a little bit more what to do. I know that there's a little bit of drama in the community about the pro oil and the, and the no oil people. And, and I think that, that we just don't know enough information. Now we know that processed foods in particular are highly inflammatory. We know that certain types of oils in general, we want to stay away from, um, and are there healthier oils? Maybe, but you know, people bring up coconut oil and I would say the answer to that is no, it's 98% saturated fat. So we are anti-coconut oil. You know, is there some counteracting of the negative effects of oils? Um, with high polyphenol content, and that's the question with things like olive oil, maybe, um, but not enough for me to advocate for or against. And so in my heart disease patients in particular, I restrict oil. Right. I mean, the thing is, is most Americans, more than three-fourths are overweight or obese, and it's got such a high caloric density. I don't know how to get people 
to lose weight with any amount of oil. It's just right, it's right. Just, I, and that's an important point. I am glad you brought that up. Like four, I always tell people it's fourteen grams of fat in one tablespoon of oil, give or take, depending on the oil. So, and people like to pour and then look away when they're pouring their oil. And so, I agree with you. Like people who are lose trying to lose weight, you listen to what they're eating. Well, there's oil in everything you're eating. So, is this too much? Yes. Is this SOS free? Is that too little? I don't know the answer. I doubt it's too little, but does it, you know, I don't think that there's a point that this is too extreme. I think that this is great, but is there room for a little bit of flexibility like right here? Maybe. And that's, I think the question I'm hoping to answer um, with my study to be continued. Right, I find that most Americans don't do moderation very well. Yes. <laughs> Yes, or no, we, that's true. You know, the average American eats between four and six grams of sodium per day. I mean, four to six grams of sodium is so much salt. And so that's one gram of salt is, I mean, two grams of salt is one teaspoon of, so, of salt. And so that's like, that's a load of salt, but they don't realize that they're getting it because they're eating out and they're ordering all these processed meals and microwaving them. And I mean, so when you, when you, if we can just get closer to this side, we're doing well, you know? And so that's what I try to tell patients is don't focus on God, God, I have to cut everything out. Just focus on making some changes away from here towards here. And that's success and that's progress. And every day, a little bit more because people say, well, that's too extreme or that, well, first of all, you could say, well, heart disease is pretty extreme. Uh, autoimmune disease is pretty extreme. Being on medications that can kill your liver is pretty extreme. But if that still feels like, you know what, that's too far away and intangible for you, the key is to just get further away from here and get closer to here. Just eat more plants. Maybe don't focus so much on all the other details, just eat more plants. Start there. Absolutely. I know that Dean Ornish has some kind of a quote that people say that eating a low fat vegetarian diet is extreme, but, you know, cutting, cracking open people's chests and stripping lane, veins from their legs and putting them in, that's, that's not extreme. I know, exactly. And so I think, I think what happens is that people find that that's very intangible. Like they don't think that that's going to happen to them. And so that's why when you bring up the bypass question, well, you don't think bypass and stenting and all this is, is, They'll, well, they're like, well, that's not going to happen to me. Well, actually, the likelihood that most of us will die of heart disease is very high. In fact, most, you know, the highest, you know, cause of death in the United States and in the world right now is heart disease. Great. Uh, Carrie Lynn, who's watching live, asks, can you please explain how a plant-based diet helps with vascular health? I have burning in my feet, so I'm trying to figure out how a whole food plant-based diet helps. So it depends what the burning in your feet is from. Burning in your feet is often neuropathic pain. And so the small little nerve endings in your feet, I don't know if you're diabetic, will often get damaged and then um, you will get neuropathic pain. The treatment for neuropathic pain is to allow the nerves to heal and regenerate. And that happens by cutting out sugars from your diet. Now, if you have a neuropathic pain that's unrelated to diabetes, a little bit trickier, um, but I find that things like magnesiums, and that's why I love Epsom salts so much, really do help with those kind of things. Now, how does a plant-based diet help with neuropathic pain? Again, it depends on if it's an endothelial or a vascular problem causing the nerve problem, or um, it's a primary nerve problem. If it's a primary vascular problem causing the nerve problem, which it more commonly is, then eating 100% plant-based will absolutely make that better. That's fantastic. What about alcohol and the heart? 
Yeah. So alcohol is always a sensitive topic for many people. You know, a little bit of alcohol in your diet is probably okay. Um, the problem that people don't realize alcohol makes you gain weight. Alcohol makes your blood pressure go up. Um, alcohol in too large amounts can make your heart weaken. So again, there's that moderation thing. And so if you have a glass of wine once in a while, is it bad for you? Probably not. And maybe good for you because it makes your HDL go up. Maybe, you know, is it, I I tell people like, if you want to have a glass of wine once in a while, go for it. Uh, uh, Don't just don't make it sort of a woman shouldn't be drinking, uh, for instance, more than a glass of wine. And when I say a glass, that's three to five ounces, not eight to 10 ounces. Uh, of wine per day, uh, and a man shouldn't have more than two um, of those glasses. So if you want to have once in a while, uh, go for it. It doesn't uh, just, again, nothing should be, uh, nothing should be, these sort of things should be on if you would desire it once in a while, rather than I'm doing it for my health. And so, yeah, are there some health benefits? Yeah, but I wouldn't add it into your life because just for the health benefits, because there's all these things that also it can do that are negative. Right. So if we're not already eating oil or coffee or alcohol, we really don't have to start. Right. Exactly. We're not trying to add things like that. The things you want to add for your health are more plants. You know, that's the thing that you want to add for your health. If there's any doubt, eat plants, eat as many plants as you can get your hands on, eat them and whole grains. And if you want to add nuts and seeds, depending on how advanced your heart disease is, you can add nuts and seeds. And then you can eat whole grains, nuts and seeds, spices. You know, these are the things I want you to eat. Beans and legumes and beans and legumes and beans and beans. You know, these are the things you should eat and loads of greens. And so those are the things you can't get enough of. Now, I know you, you, you had rheumatoid arthritis. Have you had your levels checked lately to see how you're doing? Oh, yeah. I check them all the time because I'm um, like any patient. I do get nervous once in a while where I'll feel a pain and I think, oh, God, is it back? What does this mean? So um, two months ago, right around COVID, and this has been reported, um, people are developing some joint pains related to COVID. And I also did. So I had my numbers rechecked and they were flat. And then I had my x-rays done to make sure because uh, I hadn't had them in five years uh, and I have no bone destruction, thank goodness. Oh, that's fantastic. Trish says, can this way of eating also help with osteoarthritis or is it only rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, so osteoarthritis is, remember, is that mechanical problem. So it's when the bone on bone in between your joints. And so the eating healthier and plant-based will help with the weight um, and um, so that will decrease the pain on the joints. That's a good thing. Um, but the true osteoarthritis pain, uh, it will help with decreasing some of the inflammation, but that bone on bone won't necessarily be changed by diet. Now, the what will, what will change is that you can get thinner, you can get stronger. And then if you exercise and build those quadricep muscles, you will really strengthen. Like I'm working on this with my mom right now who has osteoarthritis and we're working on building her quadriceps, which are those muscles right above your knee. And if you build those muscles, then there's less pressure on your knee and the knee gets better. Anything that gets you to lose weight is better for osteoarthritis. Absolutely. Well, I saved the most controversial question for last. It's so funny how, you know, we really just want people to eat more plants, but like the, we, we the, there's so much arguing about the initial, like nuts. Do we need oh, yeah. them? Do we, I mean, if you, I always say they're healthy and if you like them, eat them, but they're not this holy grail where like you'll die if you don't eat them. 
Absolutely. That's actually very, so if that's the question, um, yeah, I hear that question all the time. Should I eat nuts or not? You know, it, it depends, you know, again, a little bit of nuts, it's a good protein. Um, it fills your tummy. It has some calcium and almonds, for instance, there's some anti-inflammatory effects from omega-3 fatty acids like chia seeds and flax seeds. So nuts and seeds in general are, um, fine. It, you know, and, and they fill your tummy. And, um, so I, I eat cat luck. Like I have an, a cashew addiction. So I like to have a handful of cashews every day. Um, are they the best nut? Maybe walnuts and almonds are better because they're higher in omega-3 fatty acids, but I wouldn't, you know, go around eating, you know, bags and handfuls and handfuls of nuts for your health. Uh, a little bit of uh, nuts in your diet on a hundred percent whole food plant-based diet for most people will be fine. Uh, there are some people that, because there is some saturated fat in, in nuts that I do have to restrict those at the beginning while I'm working with them. And so I can really cut back on all the inflammation and reduce the LDL. That's fantastic. Well, I love your book. You can see like the, the reason they're post-its is because these are things I don't like to write in my books. I don't yeah, know why, know. you know, but, but so I put post-its in. I have little stickers too. I know. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it makes it easier. Cause I, I don't know, you know, and it also reminds me too much of when I was in high school, you know, where you end up highlighting, then you end up highlighting the whole book, which is 14 different colors. Right. <laughs> right. So, so I love the post. So this is a wonderful book guys. And uh, we have to wait till next year for the, for the companion cookbook, but please check this out because it's a wonderful book. And we had Dr. Rao on this week. You can watch that and link to that podcast as well. It's really, it's very easy to talk to you. It's just like talking to a friend. I bet you're yeah, an amazing fine. doctor and an amazing mom. Well, thank you. You know, I've, I've, if I am judged when I'm older by the fact that I did a good job with my kids, that will be, um, that will be my truest success. Uh, and if I get to take care of patients and offer them some healthy advice and sort of help them get through their hard times, then that's all I need. Well, you're, you're, you're tremendous. I would sure love to have a doctor like you. And maybe you'll come back and talk about how you balance it all. I mean, just having three kids in any kind of job, let alone being a cardiologist that much, you must have very good time management skills. Sometimes, yeah. you know, we're, we're all just doing our best. Do you have time for any self-care, like a massage here or there, maybe some exercise? Yes. Um, so I have a massage therapist that I see at least once a month, if not every or twice a month that I swear by massage. Uh, I'm a, a big person. I'm a big Pilates person. Uh, I do Pilates a couple days a week and I run three or four days a week still. Um, and then I meditate. I try to make meditation a regular part of my kids and my um, children's, uh, my, mine and my children's life. And they love uh, to meditate with me. It's a great thing for them. And they love it. They ask for it at night. They'll say, my mind is really racing. Can we do this together? And absolutely. Let's do it. And every once in a while, if I'm lucky, I'll get a ped pedicure. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. That, that, you know, I always thought it'd be great if they could just come to your house and like put you under with the massage and then while you're laying there, do your manicure and pedicure. <laughs> that would be my dream, you know? <laughs> so fun. Yeah, I don't know if you want to approach this question. I just hate getting into COVID territory, but uh, people are asking your thoughts on the vaccine. Yeah, so I uh, I am pro-vaccine is the short version. Um, I see so much COVID. Uh, I see patients that are 20. I see patients that are 90. I have patients that lose their families. I have patients that can't go see. Um, they can't see. Uh, people can't come in and see them. 
So I've had COVID, like I feel like I'm intimately involved with this, this virus. And so this is the thing, you know, I, when I posted that I got vaccinated, I got a lot of hate mail. It was interesting. Uh, and that's okay. I, I understand that that's out there. And some people will say, how do you know the long-term effects of the vaccine? Then there are other comments. People will say, well, you know, you're young and you're healthy. You'll do fine with COVID. Why would you do that to yourself? So these are my answers to all of them. Number one, I believe in the vaccine. I believe that people do, that there is a significant unknown with COVID and that while most of us will do just fine, not everybody will. And for me, my, I was like a wreck when I had COVID. I, I had very mild symptoms, but my husband had a little cough and every time he coughed, I'd get up and I was like, oh my God, I check his heart rate, I check his pulse, I get up my stethoscope. And for me, the fear of what could happen was very palpable. And so it's not worth it to me. And so, and I see this every single day in the hospital. And when I see a 27 year old get a lung transplant, it breaks my heart. And so while you could say, well, that person wasn't plant-based, you know what, uh, in the 1918 to 1920 range or whenever that time we had really bad polio and we had to take a little bit of a leap of faith and take that polio vaccine and it changed history. And so I think that COVID is something similar. It has complications that are high risk. Uh, it's not worth it to me. I believe in the vaccine, 50 million people have had it and the risk has been very low. And I myself um, am getting my second vaccine tomorrow. Wow. I really, I really appreciate that answer. I'm so glad I asked. I'm afraid to get it. I mean, I'm not, it's not, see, I'm not anti-vax. I'm pro-choice with the vax. You know what I mean? Sure. I'm not one of these anti-vaxxers. It's just, I've had so many allergic reactions in my yeah. life to even flu shots and the pneumonia. I'm just scared because that's, yeah. that's well, I, I think that's a very real concern. I'm scared too. When I walk in tomorrow, it's not that I won't be scared, but I'm going to take a deep breath I'm going to go in and I'm going to believe in the science because I want to, to have a long, full life. Uh, and I, uh, and I want to be healthy for my patients and for my family, and I don't want to pass it on. And I want a future where we can get around without masks. And I think that this is one step towards that. Oh, well, yeah, you're, you're in Florida. I hear they already run around without masks, <laughs> but there's no COVID in Florida. And there's so many, you know, we're there. very different here in Florida. We don't get COVID. Yeah, well, so many vegans are not only anti-vax, but anti-mask and they mask shame people that wear masks. Yeah, I think that's the key to be very careful in this community is that we are, our role in life is not to judge others. And, and it's so that's why when you people say, well, why don't you tell them your opinion? Well, if they didn't ask me, I don't tell them. And so I feel that um, that my job in life is to be me and to take care of me and the people around me and my family. And this is what feels right to me. If you don't believe or agree with my decisions, that's okay. And you do what you think is right. But uh, I believe in the vaccine. And so uh, I believe in wearing masks and I wear a mask. And so I'm, I'm okay with other people disagreeing with me and you do you. But again, because I'm around it every day and other people, they don't see what I see. So they don't they don't know what can happen. Yeah, I've never talked to a doctor that actually works with this disease that is against masks or vaccines. All the ones, whether they're in the plant-based world or other world, they're not treating patients on the front lines like you guys are. Yeah, it's different when you're there. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I just think you're great. So guys, she's great. So we're all gonna go buy this book right now because she's so awesome. And I can't wait till the new book comes out and I'm gonna really send you as soon as we get off some kale recipes. Yes, please do, yes. Actually, and then I'll send them to Bob and I'll say, Bob, I want to add these in. Oh, that'd be amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Such a pleasure talking to you. Mine too. Mine too. Thank you so much. Bye guys. Bye.
And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow for a double header when my guests are first at 11 a.m. Dr. Colin Zhu, who is not only a medical doctor, but a trained chef. He is going to be making a cauliflower ceviche. And at 2 p.m., we have another wonderful plant-based doctor. He was my doctor when I lived in Los Angeles. He is a pulmonary doctor and a sleep specialist and an internal medicine specialist. His name is Dr. Roy Artal. So he's going to be talking a little bit about COVID, but also a lot about sleep. Thank you guys so much for being here. And if you are watching on Facebook, please consider watching on YouTube. You see, we have something going on that we call the Zimunity. It's all the wonderful people that have been watching the show for the first 500 episodes. As a matter of fact, next Wednesday is episode 500. And we're going to be giving away at least one prize worth $500, maybe two. But you have to be on YouTube because I can't see your comments on Facebook unless I jump out of the screen that I'm watching and monitoring and actually go to Facebook, which is really challenging. So please consider if you're on Facebook, subscribing to me on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube and you haven't subscribed, please consider subscribing to me on YouTube. But in order to win the prize next week, you have to be watching on YouTube because we can't be jumping screens. So that's where the contest is gonna be taking place. So please, Facebook people, go on over to YouTube. And if you aren't subscribed to my mailing list, chefaj.com, please do that as well because we're gonna talk about the contest. We're sending the email out today, what you can win. I can tell you it costs $500 in honor of my 500th episode, which will be next Wednesday, Cinco de Mayo. And uh, thank you so much and take care. And I hope to see you tomorrow for Dr. Collins.